everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Loudwire Podcast. I'm Graham. I'm Joe. And we've got a one-inclusive twofer. What's that mean? It Graham, means, tell him. It means that we have not one, but two guests simultaneously. Wow. How about that? First up, the founder of Metal Blade Records, lifelong metalhead, one of the most important people in our little world, Brian Slagle. And accompanying him is Trevor Stranad of the Black Dahlia Murder. So we have a stacked podcast for you today. A little bit of a bonus treat there for you. For sure. So Brian Slagle has a book out right now. It's called For the Sake of Heaviness. It explores 35-year history of Metal Blade Records, all the way back from when he was a local promoter just trying to get shows going, started his own label, working out of his mom's garage, just like every good success story begins, working out of a garage, and built everything up from there. And one thing that when you ever hear anybody talk about Brian Slagle, it's about his character. Yes. It's that he's a laid-back guy. He loves what he does, and he will put his neck out for every one of his bands, and he will only sign what he likes. So this book takes you through the entire history of what happened with the label, how it grew to the size that it was today. He signed important bands like Slayer. He's had a heavier involvement in Metallica than most of you might even realize, even if you know that he's kind of responsible for Metallica even getting together in the first place and releasing one of the recordings. He absolutely and, is. Yeah. And even during the 90s, he didn't have to worry about it too much with the metal fallout and stayed into the underground with a lot of the death metal that was happening, the extreme scene. And then, of course, a huge success story in the modern era, the new millennium, bands like Black Dahlia Murder, As I Lay Dying, the kind of that new wave of American heavy metal, as a lot of people call it. And into a little bit of the future, everybody's streaming music now. So we're going to tackle all those aspects here in the podcast. And also, if you're wondering what the hell's up with Merciful Fate and King Diamond, what they've got planned, Brian has a pretty good answer for all of your queries. And if you know, King Diamond's been talking about putting out a DVD for years and years and years now. He's always said that he's still working on it. I've never doubted him that he's not working on it because I think he wants this thing to be immaculate. And from what we learned, sounds like it's going to be... It's a coming. And... You might have heard Merciful Fate have one album left on their deal with Metal Blade. What's going on there? We wondered too. Yeah. Plenty to talk about. Here it is right now. Trevor Stranad, Brian Slagle, get ready to sit down. And shout! Everyone, welcome to another episode of the Loudwire Podcast. And we've got two very awesome guests for you today, both in each side of the metal world. We have founder, CEO, and chief awesomeness at Metal Blade, <laughs> Brian Slagle, and of course, Trevor Stranad from the Black Dahlia Murder. So thank you guys for so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to talk to both of you guys today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of man, thanks a lot. So... Brian, you've got a book out for the sake of heaviness, and you're like the first metal guy who's written a book on his experience. You've got a lot of the older, the rock guys who've been around forever since the 60s, 70s, but this is the first one where we really get to see a lot of what's going on in the metal world, really starting with the 80s. And one thing that I feel like a lot of people know about you is, of course, that you released the first Metallica recording, you had the Metal Massacre and compilation, and you kind of got those guys together. 
But when I was reading, what I didn't know is that you had actually recommended not only Cliff Burton to them, but also Jason Newsted after Cliff had passed. Yeah, I was the Metallica bass player <clears throat> finder, I guess. <laughs> well, the Cliff Burton story is kind of interesting because same thing, like Lars just came to me and you know, I've been friends with him since he was 16 and I was 18 for mm -hmm. forever. So he said, hey, you know, we, we need a bass player. You know anybody? And we had this band Trauma that was on Metal Masker 2 that had played in L.A., I don't know, maybe a month before he asked me that question. And the band wasn't that great, but the bass player was amazing. Obviously, it was Cliff. So I said, yeah, there's a band from, from San Francisco playing here in a couple of weeks. You should come see them. This band, you know, has an amazing bass player. Mm -hmm. So sure enough, James and Lars came down and we're at the show. And I don't know, 50 minutes in, Lars said, that's going to be our new bass player. I'm like, all right, sure, Lars. Go and for then, it. Yeah, and the same thing with, you know, with Newstead. He was on, he was in Flotsam and... When they asked me about that, I, I go, I Doomsday. he would, I know. So that was really conflicting for me because we had this band that was really amazing. And we put out their record and it was doing really well. And it, Jason was Flotsam. He was, wrote yeah, everything. He was the primary Yeah, main guy. But I also knew he'd be perfect for Metallica. So it's like, eh, for the greater good, I guess. And he ended up being the bass player there. Yeah, and that's kind of been your reputation in the metal scene is just for the greater good of metal. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean ultimately that's what it's all about. I mean I love the music, I love the genre. Anything I can do to help, whether it's you know helping bands or helping other bands that aren't even on a label, there you know I have so many other friends and stuff. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's all all for the big the big picture, as they say. Yeah. Now you didn't get to pick Robert Trujillo. Um, did you have any recommendations after Newstead left the band? Well, you know at that point, um, yeah, I didn't really. I wasn't. I mean they had kind of. I think at that point they kind of knew where they wanted to go. So we spoke a little bit about it, and they mentioned Robert. I'm like, that's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and yeah, he's yeah. a great guy. We all knew him. So they had auditioned a lot of guys. So I think I might have thrown a couple of people out there. But when they mentioned Robert, I go, I mean, you can go through the rigmarole of auditioning other people, but he's the guy. So yeah, still a lot. Now, of um, Trevor, what was something else that you learned while reading this book? Um, just about like uh, a lot of the stuff you did in the early days, promoting shows and stuff like that. I had no idea about that. And, um, radio as well. Didn't know you were coming from that background. Um, yeah, you just like how many hats you were wearing around that time. I know. Was, was freaking insane, <laughs> Man with dude. a thousand hats. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting too, with the early LA scene. And it was kind of like a little bit of the glam. You even had a shot at getting Motley Crue on the metal massacre. Yeah. They were going to be on. And then, yeah. I, I end up giving them to a distributor and then for their for the record and then that was the end of that. Yeah, and then you broke a lot of a little bit of the new wave of British heavy metal scene in that area too. Yeah, just working in the record store, we sold a lot of that, that thing. I just you know, I was just so into the music, whatever I could do to help, I was doing everything. Yeah, radio I was helping the radio station, doing a fanzine, booking shows, working at the record stores. Yeah. Crazy. And then the nineties came around and I know Trevor, you're a huge, huge death metal fan. I'm sure we could do a five hour podcast talking about <laughs> Demi Lake at and least. stuff like that. Um but Brian, you signed Cannibal Corpse to a seven-album deal right out of the gate. Um, what made you want to lock them up for that much time? I think that was kind of where the industry was at that point. Like, everybody's doing long-term deals. If you're going to sign somebody, it was so difficult to develop them. You did long-term deals. And we loved the band. I mean, I literally saw that demo tape, and it said, A Skull Full of Maggots is one of the song titles. I said, mm -hmm. I don't really care if this is any good. We're going to sign that. <laughs> just because the of that song value title. is there, the perfect just, metal. Just that song title is so great. Uh -huh. But luckily, it was good. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, we ended up signing. So, yeah, I think all... Because that was the time we were with Warners, and because we were at Warners, we had to sign all of our bands to these long deals, even though Cannibal wasn't part of the Warners deal. It's kind of in our deal that you had to do these long-term things. Because at some point... 
if we'd stayed with Warner for a long time and Cannibal did really well, then they would want to have them. And that was kind of the, one of the major label things of you've got to sign these long deals. So you test the water a little bit with maybe the first one, two, three records. And then if they start to blow up from there, Pretty then they much. know that they've got a hot commodity locked yeah, up for but a long Ca- time. Cannibal is interesting because everything else we had was going through the Warner distribution system. But we thought Cannibal Corpse was a little too crazy for that. So they went through. Understandable. Independent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that was a good decision. Now, how much? Um, what was the album deal for Black Dahlia Murder? <coughs> Um, four at first, either four or five. I then we remember. negotiated again, and then now yeah. we've resigned a few times. Yeah, yeah. you guys are lifers. Yeah, yeah. yeah I both, mean, both you and Cannibal are lifers. On yeah, yeah. Blade, right? Yeah, absolutely. We got a few of those. Guar. Well, Guar. Guar had their little Stint, r- turn at the right? m- for a minute. Yeah, I remember. I did an interview back in college radio with Dave Brocky. Um, and he was even saying, he was in the odorous character, and he was saying how much they messed up moving away from Metal Blade. <laughs> <laughs> and you do mention Guar in the book, uh, especially uh, an incident that happened with the, the song Baby Dick Fuck, of course, that I think it was Warner that didn't want to put that out. Well, yeah, that the song that the was album. right after the whole Ice T thing happened when we was a body count and cop, cop killer. Cop. <laughs> so after that, you know, Warner's was in this big, and Warner's had just been bought by this huge company. So it's this huge corporation now. <clears throat> and so they were eventually have the whole cop killer thing happen. They actually hired a, they had a lawyer there whose job was to go through and look at every record being released through the WIA system and figure out if the lyrics were okay for the Time Warner Inc. company. And the first one, the first record we gave them was Guar, and they came back and they said, "Okay, <laughs> we can put this out, but you have to take this song off, baby, and you have to change the lyrics in this song." I'm like, "Wait a minute, what now?" And so I went to the band. I'm like, "I'm not gonna, like, this is what they want you to do. I'm not gonna force you to do it." And they said, "We don't want to do it." And that kind of led to us leaving Warner's. Yeah. Now, Trevor, have Black Dolly Murder faced any weird kind of protest? A lot of bands are getting protested for really stupid things these days. Um, uh, is there no, anything like I that mean, where we've Brian's been gone pretty to lucky. I mean, you'll see bands that get. Shut out of uh, the shows in Anaheim. You'll see stuff happening in Russia and Poland sometimes with um, obscenity charges on like satanic mm-hmm. stuff. But we've been pretty lucky to fly under that radar, you know. And I think it's a uh, such a crowded genre with so many bands breaking these rules all at once. You know, it's kind of hard to police. I think mm, definitely. But um, you know, it's a it's a whole different time as far as as shock value now than it was, you know, even twenty years ago in metal. It almost seems non-existent. Yeah, it's kind of it is. Depends on where you go, though. The world is uh, has turned. Uh, The internet era has uh, desensitized everyone, (laughs) I think, to uh, you know immense violence, uh, pornography, uh, poop, etc. You know, sometimes all in one. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes involving two cups. You know, it's definitely a different different world now. It's harder to shock people. But depends on where you go, though, because we had both Cannibal Corpse and Behemoth kicked out of Russia last year. Yeah, right. so you that never know. And there's still like a, some kind of hungover stuff in uh, Germany, right? About about old cannibal. Yeah, records. cannibal can only play certain songs there. That's so weird. I th- Germany has a get overturned. Yeah. Well, no, not all of it. Germany has this no. gigantic thick phone book of stuff that's been banned there: movies, wow. music, everything. They're southern part of Germany's super conservative, so they can still we can get away with some stuff there, but not everything. Hmm. I mean, the last Rammstein record was not technically banned, but it was you had to buy it underneath the counter. It was 18 and over. It's probably because wow. was that the one that had pussy on it? Yep, that's probably yeah. why. Well, <laughs> there, was, there was also other crazy lyrics on there too. <laughs> oh yeah, so. I'm sure. No, that wasn't that was the one after the one with pussy actually. Was it? But wow. they had some mm. other really disturbing lyrics on there. So well, of course, Till's always got some weird stuff oh, going yeah. on. He had that fish on video that he did with Peter Tactigrin. Um, oh yeah, that Peter Tactigrin. Oh, yeah. Weird. 
That was a really disturbing one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, Trevor, you know, when you signed to Metal Blade, before that whole thing, the Black Dahlia Murder was just another MySpace band. And coming from that world, when you get that first email, that first phone call, whatever it was, hey, it's Metal Blade Records, what was your reaction? Immediate disbelief. <laughs> Honestly. Because I, I so, we yeah. had like uh, tried to sell ourselves to the labels, you know, we sent out packages that had demos and uh, EPs and stuff, and uh, we got all these rejection letters, you know, sure, like thirty of them about, and uh, we had another contract in our hands. We had Willow t- from Willow Tip, and Ooh, uh, who's oh, a label okay. I love still really? to yeah. this day, yeah. and uh, so that, I mean that was like a compliment enough at the time. We were pretty excited about that, and then um, kind of after all the letters died down and stuff. You just like coincidentally happened upon us, I believe, and mm-hmm. uh, I've, I I want to say Faley was the first one to call, and like that was one of the things that didn't click right away because I didn't know who he was. Well, I think what happened? What, what, it was funny because Brian, I, I talked about this in the book actually, and Brian said he thought it was different. I I I remember I was trolling MySpace and just looking at stuff, and I saw a couple bands had this band, The Black Dahlia Murder, on there, and I was like, "Ooh, that's a really cool title. I'm going to go listen to it." I listened to it. I go, "Oh, this is really good." So I emailed whatever your contact was there and mm-hmm. said, hey, it's Brian from Metal Blade. I'd be interested in talking to you guys, yada, yada. I told Faley. I think Faley was the one, probably the one that called. Yeah, first. following up, probably. But I had sent the initial email. And it's funny because I've become really good friends with the Willowtip guys, especially because they're from Pittsburgh and we're both all pe- big Penguins fans. Yep. I had no idea about that story that Trevor just told me. And one time, Jason, I was hanging out with Jason from Willowtip. I said, you know... I- I like literally they had a contract in and you took them away from me. Oh, I'm so sorry, man. It's like, no, 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 it's all right. It's all good. It's all good. Don't worry about it. It was for the greater good. And, exactly. You know, I think there was a while where he was uh, a little bit embittered, you know, and uh, but we're cool now. I talked to him a lot, actually. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, he's really cool. Yeah, and you've had plenty of bands pinched from your label too by uh, by bigger it's just, labels. So it's what it's, happens, sure. right? Yeah, yeah it happens to everybody, I'm sure. But we try to not ever do it to anybody that has a contract with somebody. Like yeah, it's a free sure. agency or something. It's one thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, uh, you know. Especially in the in the major days back, not so much anymore, but in the major days, it happened a lot. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. You said you lost like twelve or thirteen no, bands in the, like late, in the late late eighties and yeah, twenty something. All all went to majors, and most of them all came back. Yeah, but, one part of the book that really struck me was in the very very early days. You're talking about how, no matter which bands you had, just selling something like ten thousand albums was like jump on the table. That was like platinum pop, back in the day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Pop the champagne. We made it. And it's weird because we are now, as an entire industry, back to that point where if bands are selling 10,000 copies, they're popping that champagne and going on tour. Power Trip, for example, they just put out this statement like, oh, thank you guys so much. We're so excited we sold 12,000 copies of Nightmare Logic. So Somebody mentioned that in talking about the book where we're kind of back to that again now. It's kind of interesting. It is weird. Like, How do you take that? I mean, obviously... Metal Blade Records is never going to be a multi-platinum sort of label, no matter at what stage of the music industry. But is it weird going back to that time where you started? Well, I don't know. The weird thing about it is, I mean, I mean that's true on the physical sense, but now you have the streaming stuff is coming up and doing really well now. So uh, it's all changing really quickly, and, and the money is still better than it used to be. Yeah, you said Overall, in the book you actually had quarters where your digital sales outpace your physical sales. It's that way sales. every month now. Really? Every month. Crazy. It's and crazy. you didn't finish this book that long ago either. I know. And it, it, <laughs> literally, day by day, if you look at the numbers day by day, they're better 
streaming numbers have been on the day before. Yeah. So it's really happening at a way quicker rate than I ever would have thought it to yeah. happen. And a few stats you threw out at the end of the book is that the streaming is expected to increase tenfold by 2020 and digital album <laughs> sales going to pretty much drop off within a couple so years. So they say, uh, and it's still trending in that direction. So it's going to be interesting. So do you feel like we're finally at the point where we're going to be recovering from the fallout of album of physical CD sales? Well, I think the business overall already is recovered. If you're talking about, you know, pop and hip hop and the major labels are making, I mean, yeah, they're always going to be fine. Tons, but they're making tons of money for a while. They weren't. So, but I think it's trickling down to everybody now. So yeah, we're, we're definitely getting in and it's still going to take another year or so from the metal, but it's getting there real fast. Hmm. Now, Trevor, with the Black Dahlia murder, your entire career has pretty much been a byproduct of the internet from getting signed mm -hmm. from MySpace. And you've grown up really without knowing these huge album sales numbers and things like that. So what excites you the most about the streaming world and the direction that that's going? Uh, man, I just want music to get in people's ears, man. You know what I mean? It seems like a great opportunity for uh, extreme bands uh, to be discovered just on the basis of like the way the recommendations work and things like that. Um, yeah, man, I just, we've existed in a whole time of change, basically. You know what I mean? Uh, mm -hmm. I remember like, uh, talking about the physical copy that it was going to be dead and it was like, it seemed insane. You know what I mean? Mm. And, uh, so yeah, we've just kind of been rolling with it, I, I guess, much in the way that you've always rolled with it. You know what I mean? Uh, just adjusting to what's going on at the times and kind of, you know, uh, one thing I wanted to talk a little about is. Throughout this book, you have all these testimonials from musicians about, Brian, how basically you walk the line very wonderfully uh, between being a boss and a friend to all these musicians. Trevor, I'm sure you can speak to this, but that must oh, be yeah, a, for sure. a difficult line to walk in, in that sort of... Position. I think it's real natural for you, it seems yeah, like. You, perhaps. Not, yeah. I mean, look, honestly, it's music first, <clears throat> friendship second, and then all the business stuff third. Mm. Obviously, it plays a role in there, and you have to kind of... You do have to walk that line a little bit, and sometimes there's uncomfortable conversations you have to have, but for the most part, you know, it's all about the music and, and being friends with everyone. We like to work with people that we're friends with. And we're super lucky that so many of the bands are that way. That we're, you know, we can hang out just as friends and not even worry about music and stuff. Oh yeah, so. the label has a really family-oriented vibe. Like, knowing the staff there, you know, uh, lots of hugs, lots of drinks, lots of laughs, uh, like a Vina family, you know what I mean? In a major way, and they've seen us grow up, you know, <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah, I saw... <laughs> I saw a press shot of Black Dahlia Murder. It had to be from Unhollowed, and I was like, oh my God, they're so young. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's the Who are there? these guys, right? That's a picture where I don't have a chin. I look like a thumb. <laughs> with the, got, uh, like, with the, the Unleashed shirt? Yeah, the, the old, super short hair. Yeah, yeah. The Unleashed shirt got some mileage, though. It, it uh, <laughs> yeah. canceled out my hair, I guess. That was good. Now, having that kind of friendship role first before the business, as you said, that must make those difficult talks a little bit easier because they know you're approaching it from a friend perspective and... Yeah. Everyone understands it is business, but at least you have a little bit of a nice lean in one direction before you have to have that tough conversation. Yeah, and I think we rarely ever get to that point, actually, just because <clears throat> the way we do things is like terrorists. It's a really big family. And I mean, you're going to have some times where you're not going to agree on everything. But for the most part, it's pretty easy. And we see that stuff coming way ahead of time. So I think we're all on the same page 95% of the time, probably. So, And even if there is a debate, it's not really an argument. It's more of a debate over something. But in the end, it's really whatever the artist wants. So for me, mm -hmm. if I have an opinion about something, and you know, I we don't tell bands to 
play different songs a different way or go in a different direction. We're just like, well, maybe this might be cool. That might be cool. Uh, you know, we have an opinion, but it's ultimately up to them. So sure. not much I can say. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm not going to do this. You know, yeah, it is what it is. He's not a band. Not a lot of bands stay on one label for their entire career. It's like one quarterback trying to play for the same team in the NFL his entire <clears> career. Like, it just no matter how hard you try, it just doesn't happen. But you've been able to buck that trend like pretty much the whole time except the early days you know some of the like bands like Slayer getting pinched and well, picked yeah. up by major labels but That's we were a tiny happen. little company at that exactly. point so what are we going to do like oh no we have Wait. five people <laughs> the majors have 500 stay with us yeah yeah I think you know you I mean I grew up in the 70s and I was kind of all about artist development over all this time. And mm -hmm. once we became a real label, it was like, that's what we wanted to do is we wanted to develop artists and have them have long careers. And that, that's been the most important thing to us. So I think because we have that mentality, maybe that's one of the reasons why the bands have stayed for so long. And, you know, you're, you're, it's friends and family and all that sort of stuff. So, and, and I'm super happy about, you know, being able to work with all these bands for so long. Definitely. And in the 90s, um, it was awesome that you said you just really refused to sign any new metal. And I think a lot of people are happy to hear that. <laughs> but what's it like? Because you do have a business to run as far as weighing between personal taste when signing a band and something that you may not like so much personally, but you know it's good for the business. You know it's good for the market. Nope. nope. Won't do it. Nope. Not going to happen. The only the, the, From day one, every time I've done this, has been because I like the band. And I want to work with them. Not ever going to do something, well, oh, this trend is really big. So it's sure. never going to do that. And we haven't done it. We didn't sign a lot of hair metal. We didn't sign new metal. There's, you know, look, I like pretty much all of metal and we have a pretty wide variety of artists on the, on the roster. So I like a lot of stuff, but there's certain things that I just am not into. And I'm just not, if I'm not into it, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So it doesn't represent the brand. So Metal Blade, absolutely 100% is Brian Slagle, nothing. Blame else. me if you don't like a record or band on metal, but it's my fault. I will completely take the blame. Can I blame you for a Merciful Fate album not coming out yet? Please. What's going on there? I talked to Hank Sherman when that uh, Denner Sherman EP came out because there's still one. There's still one album left on their deal, correct? Uh, I cannot confirm nor deny that. Ask okay. the question again. Ask. Uh, I'm trying to think how to do it. Um, have yeah. Merciful Fate re-signed with Metal Blade? Uh, I cannot confirm nor deny that. Would Merciful Fate like to <laughs> sign with Metal Blade? Would Metal Blade like to? Put no, out we, we. I mean, I can't, we do have uh, we do have one record left on the Merciful Fate agreement. That is mm -hmm. correct. Hmm. What are okay. you getting at here? We got to ask this question in a different way. I, I, I as far I'll, or just I'll, not at this all. is this is my statement on Merciful Fate right now. All right. <clears throat> Let me uh, get my <laughs> yeah. Make this clear. Professional voice for everybody. out here. Uh, as in regards to Merciful Fate, there are no plans at present to uh, to do anything with Merciful Fate. Um, but I cannot confirm nor deny that there are, are talks happening. All right. How's that? We'll take that. Okay. It's not a no. And it's definitely not enough. As a huge Merciful Fate it's fan, that's absolutely good enough for not me enough. right now. That's, yeah, okay. I can see the happiness on your face. Yeah. <laughs> it's genuine. <laughs> when I, I remember the first time I heard King Diamond's voice. I was maybe I was 14, and I went out and I bought Abigail. I listened to nothing but Abigail for the an entire week. Yeah, are you kidding? I listened to it five, six times a day it's for an man. entire week, and it's embedded in my brain. I was thrilled when he did that Abigail tour. I got Don't Break the Oath from my parents for Christmas one year, Christmas morning. I think I opened up Venom, Welcome to Hell, and Merciful Fate, Don't Break the Oath. 
Well, so. well, here's what I can say, just to just to even be vaguer about things. <laughs> <laughs> more vaguer, sorry, more vague. <clears throat> Incorrect English. So uh, this King Diamond CD DVD is finally going to come out uh, in early 2018. It looks like awesome. Double CD. Double DVD, out, outdoor show, indoor show, all professionally shot. All the audio will be in there. And it'll be up on streaming services, all that good stuff. Then um, sometime after that, um, King's working on a new record now, mm-hmm. King Diamond. So that record is going to come out, you know, best case scenario, late 2018. Maybe it might float into early 2019. King will tour all of 2019 for King Diamond. And then in 2020... When he's sixty-four years old. When in, then in twenty twenty, we're gonna there's gonna be some interesting things happening. All right. Jeez. All right. We gotta stick around for a while to make sure. <laughs> yes. We all gotta. Yeah. Yeah. Tell wow. me about it. Uh, so you know, and talking about trends, and uh, it, it seems like with the internet, the the trends have been shorter and shorter in their lifespans, and it's interesting. New metal seemed to take over a lot of the nineties. And then when the 2000s hit, I think metalcore was the big trend. And that's actually one that you jumped on immediately. Not jumping on the trend, but discovering bands like As I Lay Dying, who really, you know, put that new genre of metal into motion. So when you started discovering those types of bands, what was it about those uh, that style of music that excited you? Well, it was just fresh. You know, at that point, we'd kind of gone through the end of the 90s where metal's dead, it's dying, right. it's not coming back. And we survived that. And then that was just fresh. And it had an air of the true traditional metal that I, I grew up with and I love, even though it was the hardcore vocals and it was a mixture of, of both. And then you know, we started talking to some of these bands. We found out they all loved, you know, the Thin Lizzies and Iron Maidens and all this kind of stuff. Like, wow, you guys are, you guys know about those bands? You weren't even born then. And like, yeah, we're totally into it. So it, all that freshness and then meeting the bands, it was everybody's kind of one for all sort of scene, which I love. That kind of reminded me of mm-hmm. where it was in the eighties when stuff came out. I was like, we're all in this for, for the betterment of everybody. And the whole vibe I just thought was really great. And I thought the bands and the music was really good as well. Sure. And, and there has been rumblings of, uh, Tim Lambestis possibly restarting as they lay dying. So uh, having been on that, on your label for such a long time, let, let's say if he was to do that, would Metal Blade be open to, to being his home once again? You know, I think, I mean, we're always open to anything. There's a lot of other issues surrounding that whole thing. Well, sure. Um, that I have no control over. Mm. So, you know, I mean, look, if it all works out in the end, um, sure, why not? I mean, yeah. but all, all, if it, a lot of things have to play out for all of that stuff to get there. But, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I think, you know, he. in my opinion, he's, he's done his time. You know, that whole those events were were sad but he did his time i feel like you should be able to make music now having yeah i, th- I think everybody is 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 given a second chance especially yeah. in this society these days so yeah i would hope so so uh you know uh, then going beyond metalcore obviously then was deathcore again which you uh helped propel into the scene Getting in uh, on the ground floor. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, smart. Yeah. Um, Job for a cowboy, job white for chapel. A cowboy, yeah. Like right when that hit, uh, another Blazing band. the that, trails. Another band like Black Dahlia Murder that just kind of exploded on MySpace and 
Well, they were really, yeah. though, they were kind of part of the metal. I mean, they weren't really there, but they were kind of part of the metalcore scene because that was, when I when I first heard about it, I was through all the other metalcore bands. Definitely mm-hmm. on the fringe of it. I it was that's, super that's fringe we, of it. I never played, thought... honestly, was uh, when we started out, was like metalcore shows. That was the big thing. There was so much metal. All the tours you did were all metalcore. Creeping tours, over so. into hardcore at the time, and uh, there was really no death metal scene that I could locate in Detroit at the time, you know? So we kind of were like married into playing those shows, and... Uh, yeah, that's how it all started. Yeah. And it worked because Black Dolly Murder has a ton of melody. Like, it really, yeah. it all goes back to At the Gate Slaughter. Oh, for of the sure, soul. man. But yeah, well, yeah. Every, <laughs> didn't everything from that whole time yeah. period, right? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's one thing that attracted me to, to the Black Dolly Murder was that it had that heavier edge, that darker edge that I wanted. You know, it, the metalcore thing, I was kind of like, okay, I, I can feel this, but then. Bands like the Black Dahlia Murder had that real sinister edge that I just didn't feel with some of those other bands. So, I mean, it, growing up in that, uh, I guess, that scene, is that something that you heard a lot, or is that something you wanted oh, to inject? Oh, definitely when we started. Um, I mean, to me, it's always been a death metal band. Um, I don't even know what to call it now. It's, people call it so many different things. I wouldn't know what to call it. <laughs> it's Black Dahlia Murder. Yeah, that's yeah. what I realized, you know, and that's absolutely fine, you know, with me. But, um... You know, it started out being tagged with metalcore. I think a lot of it was just the records that were coming out parallel at the time. And, uh, you know, we were on OzFest, and that put us in a spotlight with the second record where we started getting a lot of press alongside uh, bands like Killswitch Engage and stuff. And we had short hair, too, so, you know, people made their assumptions or whatever. But I think, you know, being an oddball band is why we're still around, actually. You know, we've uh, been able to survive different trends that we've been called, you know what I mean? And... Mm -hmm. uh, Deathcore came after that. People were calling us Deathcore. You know what I mean? We preceded that by that's a long weird. time, I want to say. Yeah, that you know doesn't make I mean? any sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's more like of a, like a subwoofer, low-end, low-string kind of thing to me. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, like I said, man, people have called us a billion things, and uh, every time we're online, there's a genre fight that ensues afterwards, <laughs> but it's been sick, actually. You know, I think it's it's made the room full, you know? Like, there's all different walks of people out there in the crowd at a BDM show, and... So yeah, yeah it's you, awesome. Like, what do you call a, a part death metal, part metalcore band that's also funny? Well, I see that heard, that's yeah. one. You know, bands like like Black Dahlia, and you know, any band that is going to be successful over the long period of time is doing something that's a little bit different from everybody else. Sure. And you know, they have their own sound, and it's funny. I, I would say, of all the demos we get in the last four or five years, we get more bands that try to sound exactly like them than anybody else. Mm. And it's like that's, you know. As a bummer it is for us, like we don't want. To, we already have Black Dahlia Murder, but it's a tribute to to them it's that so flattering. many bands are so influenced by them that literally the sound is the same thing. And I always tell bands it's great to like be influenced by people, but don't try to sound like them. Yeah, and there seems like there's a lot of that going on today where kids will start a band and they just want to imitate everything mm-hmm. to the T, and it's like. How about you take some of that, some of that, some of that, and now, create your uh, own recipe, make your own soup. You can record yourself pretty cheaply, so there's no yeah. like, you know, filter at all. Like any band can drop something, you know what I mean, and put it on a uh, Bandcamp, for example, which is a you know great uh, outlet for that Camp, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, I love Bandcamp. Uh, but when you don't have a label, you know that's a pretty good good place to start. So. You have tons of bands that are like bedroom bands getting out there and Pro Tools bands. And uh, it's a very yeah. saturated time right now. Yeah, like every local scene, I'm sure everybody listening has a friend's band that they've put out four or five albums on their own by now. And it's yeah, you don't course. have to just 
pony up the money to get a demo recorded, make your songs as tight as possible because that studio time really means something. You could write a million songs and just keep pumping out stuff. And you either catch up in real life and learn how to play it or not. (laughs) (laughs) There's that problem too. I also think that that's prevented there from being a lot of great bands. True. Because it used to be, you know, all the good musicians would eventually kind of come together to form one band. And now it's just so easy for one good musician to just have a bunch of his friends or other people he knows make a demo or a record and put it out, like I said, on Bandcamp or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And it's there. And by the time they kind of figure out, like, oh, maybe I should be with better guys, it just, it just doesn't really happen. And that's why one of the reasons why I think it's so hard now. There's just so many bands and you don't get that. You know, like, like Whitechapel is a great example of a band you know, coming from Knoxville, Tennessee, in the middle of nowhere. Sure. And the reason they were so good is because there wasn't any scene there, nothing happening. So eventually the few good musicians there were there all got into one band and they, you know, there you go. Yeah. And now every today, like everybody's just a bedroom shredder. Like, it seems like once Necrophag just released Epitaph, all of a sudden everybody <laughs> was just sweeping and playing all this <laughs> neoclassical well, you, stuff you out of nowhere. You think about um, all the youth that have come into heavy music since the Pro Tools era. They've heard mostly perfect albums, you know, to the click, like right on. And they're learning how to play music to that. They're, you know, so like that's just a huge part of the fabric, you know what I mean, is... uh, Clinical, yeah. you know. Yeah, because it's very mechanical. Which right. Is not what you want. You we had want a feeling. Really, yeah, we had a really interesting conversation with Paul Mazurkowicz um, about a year ago. Yeah. A drummer from Cannibal Corpse and how he never used a click. And then Eric, I think it was Eric Rutan yeah, who Rutan, had him yeah. playing to a click. And he's like, I had to kind of learn my drumming style all over again. And he implements the click, he said, for now a couple tracks live. And he's gotten used to playing it and switched <sighs> it up. But like you listen to those Cannibal records and the old ones. And it's all a little unhinged, you know. So well, that was what a little was cool, like, though. Yeah, yeah, that's what's great about it. It's supposed the to be first, unhinged. The uh, first BDM Death record, metal. too. You know, we uh, click was not at all in our life, and uh, you know, you just change speeds when you wanted to, however you wanted to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just if it felt right, basically. Yeah. Well, that's the genius of like Dave Lombardo, who I think is my yes. favorite metal drummer of all time. He's got the best. Dave finesse. never played to a, to a click, at least when we worked with him, and they were, and he was always just a little off. I mean, not that, you know, I mean, his drumming was perfect, but he played, he, he couldn't play to a click because it's just a little off. But that's what the genius was and why it was so hard when Paul Bostaff came into the band to really, like, I would always miss Dave when they played the old stuff. But to Paul's credit, when he came back in this last time, I saw them and I was like, wow, they actually, actually the first time I didn't really miss Dave that much. And I told Carrie afterwards, he said, yeah, Paul sat down for like six months and listen to all the old Slayer stuff, the way Dave played it in headphones, and learn wow. how to play those songs like Dave played it, which is just, just a little a more hair. unhinged. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Just a hair off. And that's what, as for at least for me, like the kind of the feral element to extreme metal is it's not perfect. Well, yeah, it's not supposed to be. Like you listen to Autopsy. Like, oh, yeah. Well, you know, Reifert's a lot of it, I think, has just been the ease of this era. Yep. And uh, the, the skipping of the drum recording, especially, I think, is the first go-to and the first, like, you know, thing to go wrong, too. <laughs> but uh, I think that is one of the things, like, first corners cut in this era. You know what I mean? Especially in, like, the world of metalcore and stuff like that. There's so much, mm-hmm. like, just, just programmed drums out there. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree. Like, when you're listening to metal... Do you want a straight, flat, smooth ride, or do you want a rocking ship that goes with the tide? I want I to r- ride the, the mean thing. streak, the wooden roller coaster at Cedar Point that breaks yeah, your yeah, spine. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I think roller, roller coasters, to me, an analogy for an album or song is always a roller coaster. You want ups and downs, and you want to be taken on, on a ride. You don't want it just to be like some static, you know, static yeah. non 
feeling sort of thing. Right. It, but that's the thing. You can throw as many loops and as many twists and corkscrews into a nice roller coaster you can, but it's still not as terrifying as the rickety old wooden roller coasters where you feel like it's going to break at any moment. <laughs> exactly. And that's exactly. the thrill of it. And that's and I that's think, a definite good analogy for that Slayer feel, you know, just like yes. flying off the rails. Like, Graham, you always talk about the cliffhanger drum fill that Lombardo does. Yes. Yeah. That's like one just, of your favorite things ever. I, I love Dave Lombardo so much. The way that Smart he man. hits, the way that he hits his snare with malevolent intent, is what I love about Dave Lombardo, and how you can just feel like evil coming out of his hand. Well, I'll, I'll always have this picture of Dave Lombardo in my head forever. When we're making Show No Mercy, and we had no money back then, and we had to do it really quickly, and we were recording, and they wanted to record all of it kind of live. The studio wasn't very big. So we didn't have a lot of room for Dave. And Dave had a big drum set. We didn't have a lot of room for it. So the cymbals were bleeding into every mic. and It was a big mess. So the engineer decides, like, okay, we're going to have to do this without recording the cymbals. I remember hearing that, yeah. And like, we're like, really? So, <laughs> That's so bizarre. So Dave did it. It's not that hard to do when you're playing the drums, but overdubbing the cymbals, like I said, I'll never forget him. He's just standing there with his sticks <laughs> at his side, like waiting to hit the, you know, hit the yeah. and the hi-hat. It was hysterical. But it sounds, I mean... You would never know that if you didn't if you if you didn't know the story because it sounds so fluid and amazing. Yeah. But and a testament to him as a drummer. Oh my and, god, that's hard to do. And Gene Hoagland had to hold his actual kit together during one of those early recordings because yeah. they were flying away from <laughs> Dave because he's double blasting so much. Well, well, Gene was a funny story too when we were recording. I might have been Show No Mercy or Honor the Chapel. I don't remember, but Gene was just hanging hang out in the studio. Nobody really was sure why he was there. Oh, that's a great part of the book. <laughs> I was like, well, we're not, because he kind of knew some people, but he kinda, I think he initially knew somebody that worked at the studio and he just wanted to hang out. And obviously, he became friends with everybody and obviously one of the best metal drummers He's ever. He's such a pleasant man. That such like, a, well, can't, I, can't. I ended up talking to him one day and it was like, I don't know, he was 16 or something at the time. And I was talking to him for a while. I was like, oh, this kid's really cool. And I went in the studio. I go, who is that kid out there? I'm like, we don't know. So wait a minute, there's some kid just <laughs> hanging out. He was there? with you. Yeah. <laughs> and he ended up being the guy who taught Dave Lombardo how to hit that double kick. There you go. How about that? Yeah. Uh, one thing we were we were talking about before you came in was how there are really no extreme metal records that have gotten gold or platinum certifications. I think Slayer's Rain and Blood just got certified gold, which is insane to think that. Which probably Especially, will change with all the streaming rules now. I, but I, I for hope, now, I, I think the Slayer stuff is. I think they've got more than just one. That's that's that okay. way now. I think there's a few. But you're still right. Yeah. It, I mean, it just happened with Rain and Blood. So yeah. That's unbelievable, especially when Metallica have sold, what, like 16 million black albums or More whatever. More copies of the that, black yeah, album probably. every week than most metal bands. That's unbelievable. Uh, in, it's insane how that thing keeps going like that. It is crazy. The whole catalog is like that. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, true. They're, they're just that unicorn band, you know? Yep. Uh, so in Metal Blade Records history, 35 years, what is the highest selling album that you've ever put out so you ready for this i know <laughs> oh. google dolls oh that's right <laughs> <laughs> were, yeah. we were talking about the google Back dolls thing before this too, before you came in yes <clears throat> before well right when they got huge basically Jeez, so which album which google dolls album dude was the one that the broke boy, out boy, the, the one that broke one, out man. a boy a boy named goo i think it's double platinum now maybe or something jeez all right well so aside was, from the google so aside dolls, from the google dolls <laughs> it would be yeah it'd be uh, show no mercy and hello waits they're both pretty pretty similar at this yeah, point makes sense and then you know maybe amana mars kind of creeping up 
a little bit behind them. They're doing really, really well. well. Those as I lay dying, I think some of, a lot, some of those have done a quarter Cope, yep. million. Those did pretty. Those did pretty well. Those did well for themselves. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, Cannibal, Black Dahlia. We have a whole sure. slew of bands, Guar that. You know, nobody's had a platinum or a gold record of one specific record, but you look at over the course of time, they've all sold a lot of records. I mean, Cannibal sold like almost three million records at this point in their yeah. history, which is crazy. Yeah, it's for a band like that. Yeah. Yeah. Those and, now that, and they do well on the charts. Cannibal do well on the An- charts. Another now too. one that people don't remember that's I, I, it's definitely in the top 10, probably all time Metal Wave records, if we put like the album sold, Six Feet Under. It was, uh, either, it was either, it was either max, yeah, I think it was maximum violence. That that was when that record came out, and I forget what the correlating cannibal record was, but Six Feet was selling twice as much as Cannibal. I think it was like Wasn't almost like three hundred thousand wow. copies in the U.S. or something. Didn't that record wow. like uh, keep you guys afloat for a minute? There wasn't that the, during <clears throat> the dark times. Well, the dark times weren't that dark though. This is what I try to explain to people. Like, everybody goes, "Oh, the '90s was dead." The you underground was doing great. I mean, we had we had Six Feet, we had Cannibal, we had we had Guar. Uh, we had King Don, we had Merciful Fate. Like, all these bands were selling really good amounts of records. Just nothing mainstream. Yeah, yeah. But you so, weren't selling a million albums in the 80s. So exactly. it's not like you had, you had that steep drop off the cliff when that metal kind of disappeared a little no, bit in the we, 90s. You had to maintain pace. We did, pace. We did fine in we did fine in the 90s. I mean, certainly it helped have a little extra Goo Goo Dolls money to oh, yeah, buffer sure. it a little bit. But still, I mean, all those records did really, really well. So for us, people look back and and I, I encourage people to go back and listen to a lot of records. And I think that, that kind of, you know, 94, Four to, to 2000 era people just don't go back and listen to that I mean the, like the King Diamond Merciful Fate stuff we did back then I think was awesome and one of my favorite things now is I'll go to a King Diamond show and people said man I just discovered Voodoo it's so good oh, I never realized how great that Radar record was my first man yeah so good I love it so you know it's, it's people kind of rediscovering that stuff now because it's like ah oh, it's the 90s it all sucked yeah. the metal was dead nothing was good there it's like wait a minute there's a lot of good stuff there especially like I don't know I love going through a band's catalog and kind of digging into their more maligned albums because when you love a band so much it's about you love the players in the band and you want to hear what kind of music they're able to create and when they're in the mid 90s they're like what do we kind of do here so it's interesting to see a band that might be a little bit I don't want to say at their worst but maybe just a little lost or misguided or like even you said like your first introduction to King Diamond was The Graveyard mm-hmm. and that's a really different album for King it's mm-hmm. got a lot of slower songs on there mm-hmm. a little bit of a different pace but I still find it fascinating or even like Celtic Frost Cold Lake I mean there's tons like I mean then you like have that. like mid 90s every uh, Swedish death metal band starting to like inject rock and you have like these grooves coming in to a lot of bands uh, at the time that would like precede new metal kind of in a way. That was yeah. weird this when all those bands like you know Paradise Lost and Inflames took these like, crazy turns kind of like wait cuz we did the early Paradise Lost stuff here. And then when they when they kind of took that turn I was like yeah. 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 Or like in, I, did, in I don't tomb, know that I got it at that point. Like in tune with uh, to ride straight to yeah, shoot yeah, straight exactly, and exactly speak the getting, truth. Getting at, yeah, definitely. I can never remember the name yeah. of that. You had a lot of bands just going that that route. This member got weird then. Uh Grave got went down that Wolverine Blues path kind of a little bit. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, Brian, Brian, what's the record you're most proud of having released with Metal Blade? Yeah, it's always a tough question, but I think there's one, and it's you know it's hard to say, but I think the one for me, I mean, there's a couple of them. I mean, just the first album is crazy. Just 
fact, I actually put out a record when I was 21 years old, didn't know what I was doing. But doing it, Armored Saint Symbol of Salvation was a really important record for me because the, the band was really great friends of ours. They grew mm -hmm. up, they were the first band ever signed to a major label and really gave us a lot of publicity talking about, you know, this label they came from. Really great friends of mine forever. And then when the guitar player passed away, Dave Pritchard, they had kind of broken up. They were done with Chrysalis. They were kind of broken up. They were sick of the whole thing. And they're like, we're just going to move on and do whatever. But they made all these amazing demos while Dave was still alive. And I went to them. I go, we, you can't let this music die. We have to do something with it. It's way before the internet and anything else when, you know, you... So making Civil Salvation, you know, getting Dave Jurin, who did Allison Chains and James Dixon to produce it, and Q Prime managed them. It's kind of they they got a second chance at life, and that record got a second chance at life and did really well. So just the whole process surrounding that was probably the one record I have to pick. Yeah, and that's one of the emotional stories in the book too. Yeah, that I really enjoyed. Now, cool. Trevor, uh, don't pick your own here, your own band. Uh, your favorite Metal Blade release? Uh, the Bleeding. No, nice. no doubt. Uh, for me, uh, coming into Metal Blade was like right, you know, when you guys were putting out a ton of death metal and blazing a trail in that in that way, and uh, so to me, it's like a big, it's an important death metal label to me in that way. You know, uh, Broken Hope and Campbell Corpse ruled my world as a kid. All that gore, loved yeah. it. Bleeding's probably my favorite Cannibal Corpse. Record. <clears throat> I will tell you my favorite Black Dahlia Murder record though, just All to right. be controversial, yeah. Unhallowed. I would agree. Only because I, you know, I heard the, the I heard the demo and we signed them and you know I thought the band was really cool, but I didn't expect that, and I was obsessed with that record for the first month I got it. I just played it every oh, day, twenty four cool. hours. I remember handing, a day. handing it to you and feeling oh like, man, I don't know if we did this right. <laughs> no. Oh what my God, you? did you do it right? I was no, still to this day. What were you apprehensive about? Well, I mean, we were young. Uh, honestly, a lot of what we were trying to do, like. Playing wise was a stretch for us at the time. You know what I mean? Like really cutting our teeth at playing technical stuff, and you can hear the sloppiness. You can hear the youth there. There's no click. You know, it's pretty raw. And uh, I know. I guess the energy did come across, though. You know. Yeah, I just thought, yeah. I thought songwriting wise. I mean, for you know young kids. Oh, really? I mean, some of those riffs are just. I mean, that's like classic historical riffs for me. I mean, some of that stuff is like funeral thirst. Oh my god, it's still one of my yeah. favorite songs, especially for a debut. Like. Yes. Immediately. Yeah. You're like, whoa, hold on a second. And what I that love... song will be around for sure. I mean, oh, we yeah. can't get us, get away from that one. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> yeah. But I don't mind. I like it. And something I love about young bands, uh, like I've talked to this to the guys in Suffocation. It's like your song structures are just so insane. Your arrangements. And they're like, yeah, well, we were young. We were just, you know, throwing any riff we had together against the other one. So like now we know a little bit more about songwriting. But I was like, no, like, be weird. Just do all that weird off-kilter stuff. And that's what I love about hearing a band's first album. There's always, like, the elitist of, like, oh, the first album, and I prefer the demos. But, like, that whole mentality. But you really get to hear where you're coming from and just no preconceived notions about songwriting. Like, you guys just go for it. Well, there's also no, there's no outside voices or forces. Because no. once mm. you become successful, kind of that innocence is gone. And you've right. got, you know... Everybody out Pressure there Pressure on you to, yep, to, yep. to write quickly. The first record you put out is like a best of everything you've had to that point. So mm -hmm. it's different mm -hmm. than having to respond with a blank slate. You know what I mean? And the problem that a lot of bands get into is they, they listen to those outside forces. And you talk to any major band, they make music for themselves. Like whether it's Metallica or Guns N' Roses or Black Dog, you know, any, pick Cannibal, anybody. It's like you make it for yourselves and if everybody else likes it, that's great. But if once you start to 
somebody's influencing you saying, oh, you know, it's you should sound like this now or that. just did this. That's you could, what it's over. Here's what's possible for the You should get band. a DJ. <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. Um, well, that does it for all the time that we have here today. We, Brian, we want to thank you so much for coming in. You're one of the most important men in the history of heavy metal. Oh, thanks, So man. for the sake of heaviness, out now, history, 35 years of Metal Blade. And then Trevor, thank you as well. And we've got a new album coming out from Black Dahlia Murder, Nightbringers, October 6th. That is correct, on, my friend. You Thanks for having it. us. Oh, yeah. Out on, uh, you guessed it, Metal Blade. That's right. So, uh, can we see Black Dahlia uh, Murder on tour pretty soon? Where can you we betcha. Catch we'll be going around with Suffo around the States, uh, celebrating the Nightbringers <sighs> with uh, Exhumed on some dates, uh, Worm Witch opening, Necrot, one of my favorite Bay Area Deathsters, got them on the bill, and uh, Decrepit Birth. That in the wake it. of their brand new album, which is disgusting. So the lineup is thoroughly awesome. And it's very gross. happy about that. So come right. check it out. Thanks for coming in, guys. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. There was your Loudwire all-inclusive two-for-one episode. Trevor Sternad, Brian Slagle. Great tagline for this podcast, Graham. Thank you. The two for one, all inclusive, who's the what you get you special. <laughs> a very nerdy discussion, which we always appreciate. Isn't it the best just talking about Dave Lombardo's drumming? You know what? I really don't do it enough, even though I do it almost every day. It is a living, and we still cannot talk about that guy's playing enough. We had Thomas Hawke on here on the podcast from Ashuga. We debated the best thrash drummer is actually between Gene Hoagland and Dave Lombardo. Both those yeah, guys came right. up in the same conversation. I'm sure we could have gone down that route all over again. But if you want to, you should definitely check out that podcast too. Yeah, for sure. So the Goo Goo Dolls. The, I didn't, <laughs> the Goo Goo I, Dolls. That, that is the obvious answer, and I don't even know why we didn't think of it. Well, it's because it's not a metal band. Yeah, and but like, we knew the Google Dolls were on Metal Blade. I did know that, but I why would I keep that information in my brain if I don't care about it? Because you just read the book, Graham. I know, but it's still, like, if it's not metal, if it's not a band that I like, an artist that I like, it goes immediately out of my brain. Yeah, I'm going to forget it once we leave this studio. Yeah. So we met Brian briefly when we were at Chicago Open Air. Um, just very light conversation real quick. So this is the first time that we've had a chance to actually sit down and have an at-length conversation with him. Yeah. And it's so crazy just hearing all these stories about Brian Slagle over the years and just all these testimonials you hear from everybody in the industry, all these bands and how much they love the guy. Even James Hetfield can't thank the guy enough for pretty much being responsible for where Metallica are today. I mean, they did a lot of the work themselves too. Let's not... Pretend like they didn't write Master of Puppets here. Yeah. But I completely understand what everybody's talking about. And especially when I was asking him the question about, you know, have you ever signed something? Well, this is a good business move. It's not my favorite. And he was just shaking his head no as I'm talking. And that to me said exactly what everybody needs to know about Brian Slagle. Yeah. Immediately said no. I was also expecting Trevor to hesitate a little bit there on his favorite Metal Blade release, but boom, Cannibal nope. Corpse bleeding instantly. <sighs> it's a hard one to argue that with. That guy probably knows more about death metal than anyone on this planet that's ever lived. So yeah. for him to just pick a favorite like that, I mean, yeah, it's it's a sick album. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Loudwire podcast. Make sure you go to loudwire.com for all your daily rock and metal news. 
Hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter. Give us a subscription on iTunes. Hit that subscribe button. Leave us five stars and a comment if you'd be so kind. Subscribe to us on YouTube. You can follow me, Graham, at GrahamWire. And you can follow me, Joe, at Ice Nerve Shatter. And that's on Instagram. It is on Twitter, too, but I don't do anything on there. So follow me if you don't want your news feed to get clogged up. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. And don't forget, as always, play Duke.